You're listening to the Inside Study Abroad podcast, episode number 12. Welcome to the Inside Study Abroad podcast. I'm your host, Brooke Roberts. In this show, we explore the world of international education and meaningful travel with some fascinating guests, a little friendly debate, and a whole lot of practical advice. Let's get going. Hello, and welcome back to the Inside Study Abroad podcast. Happy New Year, everyone. I am so excited to be launching into 2017 with you and sharing more great interviews, insights, and some advice on all things international education and study abroad. Wow. Since the last episode, I headed to Indonesia for three weeks to lead a yoga retreat and check out a few retreat centers around Bali, and that was an amazing, amazing time, especially since it was a little chilly back in Kansas City. And in late December, I returned back to Kansas City just in time to head to the farm and spend some quality time with my parents over the holidays. And after my crazy fall travel schedule and then heading to Asia, I honestly have just been feeling a little exhausted <laughs> and uh, getting my 2017 mojo off the ground has been a little challenging. So it's been a little bit of a slow start to the year, but I'm feeling good and getting caught up with everything and I feel like I'm finally ready to get going. So welcome to 2017 <laughs> and and there's going to be a lot more coming from Inside City Abroad and a lot of the other projects I've got stewing in the background, if you will. So before we get to today's episode, first, I want to share a little bit about today's sponsor, Teradata. As you guys may know, Teradata is a leading software company serving the international education field, providing flexible web-based enrollment, processing, and application management software that streamline everything for both students and administrators. Sounds pretty amazing, right? It's like magic. If you want to learn more about Teradata and how they can help you, head over to teradata.com to learn how you can join over 500 universities using their solutions for your office. Okay, now let's get to today's episode. Back in October, I had the privilege of sitting down with Jim Pello, the CEO of CIEE, while we were both attending the IIE Generation Study Abroad Summit. There's a lot of acronyms in there. <laughs> we were there in D.C. together, and Jim was so kind to sit down with me and have a chat about his own career and and all things international education. And honestly, you guys, this was my first in-person podcast recording, and it was actually a lot of fun to be sitting sitting down face-to-face -face with someone. And so I'm hoping to do a lot more of these at future events. So stay tuned for that. So what did we talk about? And here's what you're going to learn in this episode. How uh, someone like Jim with no traditional study abroad experience becomes a CEO of one of the leading international education companies in the world. This is especially, I think, insightful and encouraging for those people who are trying to break into the field but don't have the quote traditional uh, boxes checked on their resume. Jim's story could be pretty encouraging for you. We also go into one of the most meaningful international experiences Jim has ever had and we also talk about Jim's past and how he helped completely rebrand and transform a university from being a traditional commuter campus to a world-renowned leading institution with a decent basketball team I might add. We talk about the work that they're doing at CIEE that Jim is most proud of and teaser how to get a job at CIEE. This is a good one for anybody who uh, wants to move to Portland. We also get into how Jim feels about those trying to break into the field and a little bit of a hint. He asks you, do you know your center of gravity? And we'll get into that in the interview. We also talk about how to focus on growing the number of students and studying abroad while maintaining quality, which is a big 
big topic, especially as in the context of being at the Generation Study Abroad Summit in DC when we had this conversation. And then we also discussed some of the research around the most impactful program models for study abroad and learning outcomes. All right, let's get into the show. Okay, everybody, I'm here live doing my first in-person podcast interview with the one and only Jim Pello, CEO of CIEE. Thank you so much for making the time for this, oh, it's Jim. It's my pleasure, Brian. It's awesome. So let's start with you telling your international ed story. So my international ed story. So I'm one of those kids that didn't get to study abroad in college uh, or high school uh, or even grad school. Um, my first international educational experience was actually um, when my university, I was working at St. John's University in New York, and there was a kind of an educational tour group that was going to study Magna Gratia, so kind of southern Italy and what the, the roots of Western civilization. And it was one of those um, trips that was kind of older in terms of clientele. It was all the old deans and faculty of the university. And at the very last minute, uh, two of the participants dropped out, and there were two seats, and they were all paid for. And so. I was invited to jump on board with my wife. We had no idea, it literally a 24-hour packings, and we were off to the races. And we spent 10 days running around um, southern Italy, uh, visiting incredible small towns and being shepherded by amazing uh, scholars who were explaining the rocks and the ruins and the empires and the characters from 2,000 years ago. So wait, so how old were you? Do you mind telling me how old you were? No, I was uh, probably... 28 maybe at the time yeah so wait let's back up so where did you go to college like what what was your major like what was the Uh, limiting factor for you so i'm very proud now that it's a it's a uh, number one movie okay (laughs) to say that my roots are i'm an accountant okay right so don't confuse me with ben uh who's out there now number one in the box office but um i was a i was five out of six kids i was putting myself through school i was going to go get a job that paid money and i was going to become a cpa and an attorney yeah. And so, um, uh, five out of six kids, by the time they got to the last three, family didn't have any money, so we all kind of put ourselves through. And I went to a school in western New York, Niagara University, okay. home of the Purple Eagles. Yeah, nice. They offered me some, uh, some money and some opportunities to do some work study. And um, I started in 79. That's how old I am. Seven, nine. We'll do the math, do the math later, later, everybody. We'll right? do the math later. <laughs> and so I got out with... Um, uh, an accounting degree, and then my first 10 years of career were all about pursuing opportunities where there was a little bit of a crisis management uh, item. Um, instead of becoming a public accountant, I stayed on at Niagara, and uh, Niagara was in the process of going through a very serious financial uh, challenge. They were almost going out of business, so I started work there and went to school at night for an MBA. And then uh, it was the mid 80s, uh, everyone was making a million dollars. I wanted to go down and trade bonds in Wall Street. So I went down to Wall Street and in '87 the stock market crashed, right. and so, so wait, wait. that was it. So where, what, what about your family? Was there any? I just find this fascinating because I, I grew up in rural Kansas, and ah. I did not grow up around people traveling or anything. My dad was a Marine yeah. for a while. He had gone to Korea, but that was like weird and yeah. crazy. Yeah. So I'm just interested to hear, like, was this, was the inter, was there an international piece to your family no. life in no. any way? Yeah. No. Okay. Now my dad is the only one in his family that went to college. My mom never went to college. He yeah. was a, a chemical engineer. Uh, actually, to be honest, my travel, my entire um, childhood, was a two-week summer camp 
that was about two hours away from home. Right. That was about it. Yeah, yeah. I used to go to Kansas City for a weekend in the summer. Yeah, growing and that up. was yeah. a big deal. Yeah. So, okay, let's fast forward a little bit to so your career now, like getting in the international space. Yeah. So I was doing a little creeping on you online yeah. and, I, you know, reading your bio and some other things and your work at St. John's came up. And so it looked like you facilitated some massive change and growth there. It's just really interesting to, to see that kind of massive growth and I feel like people working in the field now, especially maybe at the beginning stages, they can't even wrap their head around how that happens. Yeah. So how, do you, how, how do you begin to facilitate that kind of conversation on the campus? So, I, um, so what you don't do is you don't go and persuade faculty committees that change is necessary. Um, you're usually presented with a nice, you know, the Chinese symbol that is the same for challenges, is the same for opportunity. So my early career and actually the change effort at St. John's was all around responding to crisis. Mm -hmm. So at St. John's, um, for 100 years they were a commuter school. They served the uh, young men and women of New York City and they were very proud of it and it worked well for 100 years until the public school system started to fade in the city and there were two options. Either the university continues to enroll students from that public school system, in which case quality would decline, mm -hmm. or it could reduce the number of students, uh, in which case there would be budget cuts and layoffs and things, or it could have this kind of big, hairy, audacious idea, which is to transform itself from a local commuter school to a national and international school. And at the 11th hour, the board opted for uh, option C. And so after that uh, decision was made, it was off to the races. We had to do lots of buildings. We built 18 buildings in 10 years. We had to um, reinvent the enrollment group and the admissions team. They'd never been to California. They'd only been to Brooklyn. So yeah. they didn't know how to recruit over on the other side of the uh, continent, uh, let alone overseas. Um, we had to figure out how to take care of students that stayed on campus overnight. We had mm -hmm. to um, take the public safety right. that basically were hired to guard parked cars now had to figure out how to take care of kids that were climbing in windows um, late into the night when they were breaking curfew. So it was a, it was a really great time to be uh, in that world because um, nothing was out of bounds, nothing was beyond the limits of possibilities, but it was all driven by a sense of urgency to create change to save the institution. That's crazy. And my experience is that urgency is like, what it was isn't about. Was that happened? Did you ever oh, yeah. moments with this? Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, many times. Um, one of the great stories is that we, um, the first set of buildings we built were awful. They were awful. They were over uh, budget, uh, not by a couple of bucks. They were over budget by uh, $50 million on a $100 million budget. And they were supposed to be delivered in August to receive 2,000 students that were going to show up, first class ever. And we didn't think we were going to get them until October. So there were times when we were looking for hotel rooms all around New York City. We were thinking that the reputation of the school would uh, first impressions last, and so we would be that school that couldn't deal with residents, uh, residential students. So there were lots of kind of burning moments um, right out of the gate, and then as you start to assimilate a residential population, there were lots of, of interesting moments. Probably the, the biggest challenge we had was making sure that the students that were coming from around the country were um, fitting in well. and. Um, working well with the commuter students from around, that we didn't create a class system or a inside the circle, outside the circle mm -hmm. uh, sort of community. We were trying to build a community that was, in many ways, the kind of community that we're trying to build through study abroad. Mm -hmm. Individuals that understand one another, respect one another, and, and, and uh, learn and grow from one another. Yeah. So, okay, so 
then where does the flip happen for you from doing all this domestic work? You're a finance guy, yeah, yeah. and then and someone who hasn't left. Well, you, at that point, you'd yeah. left the country yeah. and, and traveled. But then, where does this either interest on your part or where when do you flip into the international ed world? And what made you qualified to do it? Like, did you, was there any ever pushback? You weren't <laughs> like a traditional international ed yes. person. Yes. So so I should state from the beginning that. Um, I was never qualified, and some suggest maybe I'm still not qualified <laughs> to actually uh, be involved in this space. Um, it's going to sound like a broken record a little bit, but we were in the process of trying to build a graduate um, MBA program. Mm -hmm. Why? Because the, the business school was uh, struggling to compete with other business schools in New York City. And the dean hatched an idea that if we could create an international MBA, we would really set ourselves apart. So I was known uh, by this time I was there maybe... Uh, five or six years, I was known as a fix-it guy, and so I was invited to be part of a small team to go to Rome, Italy, and begin to figure out how to implement a AACSB accredited business program in, in Rome. Um, and for a while there, I was traveling um, once a month to either uh, recruit partners or hire faculty or figure out facilities, um, recruit internship placements, and so on. And so, from almost no international experience, I was suddenly on a plane every month to, right. to Rome, Italy, and. Um, to this day, it's, it's my second favorite city after New York City, living in New York for 20 years. Um, but it was one of those things where if you thought um, like you could not fail, if you believed in the vision, and if you just uh, problem solved uh, nonstop, you could, mm -hmm. you could accomplish it. So we put together a pretty clever uh, MBA program that was built around seven week semesters. Mm -hmm. Used all the faculty from New York City and um, uh, was highly successful right out of the gate and had lots of good placements and from there we built an international relations um, master's program and from there we built an undergraduate program. Um, the undergraduate program in Rome was instantly uh, rolled out as a program that we called Discover the World which was, um, it's going to sound familiar to what we're doing at CIEE now, but it was uh, Discover the World. The idea was take the 15-week semester, break it into five-week blocks and allow students we had a lot of poor students because we were still trying to uh, serve an underserved population. And, and so the idea was create blocks of courses that students could take um, regardless of their economic strength, regardless of their academic major, regardless of whether they had a summer job or an elder parent at home to take care of. And we created this kind of calendar that went throughout the year uh, that was built in four and five week blocks. And the result of that was, um, and we did it in Rome and Paris and Salamanca, Spain. The result of that was we went from about 150 students studying abroad to 850 students in four years. Uh, the students, the board always insisted, no matter what we did, that there was equal access. That if we had 44% students of Pell eligible or students of color in our undergraduate population, if we built dorms, they had to reflect the same population of the dorms. If we bought laptops, which we did, we're one of the first schools to buy every student a laptop, all students had to have an equal level playing field. So when it came to study abroad, the mandate was it can't be for the white affluent female student in a junior year. It had to be democratized. And, and so um, those are some of the background stories, yeah. uh, kind of being thrown into the pool but having very clear expectations for right. what success looks like. And then, and then get into the top of the mountain. You know, one of the things I love about your story, so I work with people trying to break in at the entry level. Yeah. They could sort of come back from studying abroad with CIE yeah, and yeah, think, yeah. I want to do this the rest of my life. And part of my job, what I've taken on, is sort of educating them on what it really means to be a professional in this space. That, um, 
that that passion for study abroad isn't necessarily enough. You need to be able to do some stuff. And uh, what I find wonderful about your story is that sometimes I feel like as a as a field, as an industry, we get very tight wrapped into the underlying philosophy or academic modalities yeah, yeah, of like yeah. what we do, but not realizing that honestly, sometimes we just need to execute on something. Sometimes yeah. we need to deliver at the other end. And, and it's, I work with people all the time who are trying to break in and they're constantly told, go get a master's degree. You know, if you want to even see inside the room, you need to get a master's degree to get in the door. And and I'm trying to help people figure out like how do you actually position your experience that's valuable to the people yeah. you're applying to. Um, so one of the things I wanted to ask you about with um, like things you're doing with CIE, because you kind of alluded to it, this program model you guys created with the five week yeah. stints. Yeah. Yesterday, was it yesterday? Where are we? Whatever day you were on the panel like here at IIE, um, uh, it was that conversation, and I've had this conversation many times about this concept of Generation City Abroad that yeah. is very numbers driven. Yeah. And then a lot, and I've had conversations with people thinking, but what about quality? Yeah. What about quality? What about quality? And and I'm, I personally don't believe that they're mutually exclusive, but and it's something, one of your answers was really intriguing where you did talk about how you felt that's not a non, it's a non-starter. It's a non-starter in terms of the limiting factors for growing the numbers. What are you guys doing at CIE to implement those new innovative models so that there is more access to a broader range of students? So I'll answer the question, but I'm going to take a half a step back. Yeah. Sorry, I said a lot there. Because <laughs> your opening was about how do people break in yeah. and, and get involved. And then your second half of your question was um, how do we uh, get comfortable with uh, doing things in non-traditional ways, mm -hmm. putting words in your mouth. And in That's the first, a better way to say it. It's good. In the first instance, I would say uh, one of the most dramatic um, surprises for me when I came into this field from spending 20 years at one institution uh, it was a feeling that David Wilson, who is the president of Morgan State, shared yesterday on our panel with, with the Penn Center for Minority Serving Institutions. And David talked about his undergraduate experience being a family, being all about the student, and that in all of his stops to Rutgers and Harvard and so many other great institutions, he never found it until he got back to Morgan State. Mm. And so what was striking me in my mind is the same feeling I had coming from St. John's. At St. John's, we were um, student-centered. And so I'm going to explain that. Um, the, the concept is, where is your center of gravity as a person? You want to break into this business, where's your center of gravity? If your center of gravity is, I'd like to travel, then you should go to a travel company. <laughs> if your center of gravity is that you are a, a very um, traditional academic and you believe in certain rigor and frameworks that are historically in place, then you should go to a very traditional, um, if you don't mind me saying, stodgy, um, environment where that's embraced. But if you're student-centered, if your center of gravity is to um, impact more lives by touching more students, then you have to put yourself within that individual student. And every student has a different story. They all have different economic means. They all have different things happening at home. They all have different um, majors and minors and uh, tension points and limits to what they can do. So if you're really student-centered, you have to create models that allow for uh, many different approaches to an international global experience. There is no evidence that I know of that proves that a full year uh, homestay or a full semester homestay is more impactful than any other type. In fact, the Georgetown Consortium proved just the opposite. Mm -hmm. There's no proof that I know that a certain number of weeks of Spanish or French uh, make a dramatic difference in terms of your ability to 
um, be, a, be a better speaker. There are some studies that show it does matter. There are some studies that show it's less important. It really is about the quality of the starting point. What did the student have when right. they showed up and, and the quality of teaching. So there aren't these magic, rigid uh, frameworks that uh, folks in higher education uh, have a tendency to lean on. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying anything that's not known and written about. It happens at every single college campus when it comes time to update the core curriculum, mm -hmm. when it comes up to update new majors or minors. There's this debate. In fact, one of the things I like to point out is um, the great um, story around the Yale report of 1828. Um, take it to Google it if anyone's listening to this. Yeah. In 1827, Yale was trying to figure out what the core curriculum should be. And in classic academic fashion, the dean tapped the faculty to go study it. Well, in those days, you got a whole year to study something. Mm -hmm. So in 1828, they came back. And the tension point was, should we basically move from the traditional uh, classics, Greek and, and Latin and so on, and into more of what we call today professional or vocational? Right. Um, and I won't do it uh, um, justice, but the eloquent response was, we should stay firm. We should stay put, and they made a very a compelling argument about the furniture of the mind and the expansion of the mind and mm -hmm. being able to populate that with knowledge that's useful later in life. And it's credited, the Yale Report of 1828 is credited with delaying um, professional education and mm -hmm. curriculum adjustments for 50 years. It wasn't until 1865 that it actually was revisited. Well, that would have been what, John Hopkins? Would've John Hopkins was one of the first Germanic Hopkins, model Michigan, institutions. Couple of, couple of great schools. Yeah, um, that's, yeah. I, I can geek out on the history of higher ed. That's what I studied in my master's degree. So, <laughs> it's really fascinating. So it's no surprise to us that for 200 years at least, maybe more, um, or people have argued about what's appropriate. Right. And, um, and so I'm going to add one more framework. Uh, we could sit here all day and talk about what's the purpose of education. Is it uh, liberal arts and furniture okay. of the mind, as the Yale folks would say, or is it um, to get yourself ready for the world, or is it, um, if you're with the State Department, part of study abroad is around public diplomacy and making sure that our world is a more peaceful place. Um, regardless of what you pick, if you want to have more lives touched, then you have to be open to new models. And your, your burden then is not in saying no to new models, but making sure the new models have the elements of quality. Right. And, and then you get into a whole other um, kind of circle of, of uh, debate. How do you know quality? Uh, no one does pre and post testing. Right. Really. I was going to uh, say, that's so one of my next questions. It's yeah. all about anecdotal uh, response. We're trying to introduce some rigor there. We're not walking away from anything traditional. We still have full year and full semester, and a third of our programs are direct enroll, and we have more homestay mm -hmm. um, opportunities than anyone in this, in this space. We have 500 families in Seville, Spain alone that are in our homestay network. So we're big believers in the traditional building blocks, but we're also big believers in democratizing mm -hmm. and opening doors. And you can't, you can't look at the stats over the last four decades and see that this continues to be, in spite of every conference like this, where people should line up and say, we need to do a better job. And they've been doing it not for the last two years, the last 20 or 30 years. We, we need to do a better job. And look at the stats and see that we're really not doing a better job. Mm -hmm. We argue, as I pointed out in my afternoon session, we argue that we're, we're making headway in terms of access to students of color into this world. But in fact, it's the undergraduate population that's swelling. Mm -hmm. So the 35 or 40 million undergraduates in the US that are actually going to school are much more diverse today than they were yesterday. The percentage of those students studying abroad is roughly the same proportionally to uh, where it was 10 years ago. Right. And so in other words, we're not making any gains in terms of opening up doors. Um, and if you're a college president or dean and you're saying that my school, my distinctive mission is to pr 
prepare students in a special way for the future. You can't really say that if you don't have this experience for mm. your students. And if you have already a gap between blacks, Hispanics, and, and other uh, students of color into college, and then there's another gap, gap into, yeah. into global programs, you've got this kind of double hit uh, impact where fast forward 10 or 20 years, not only are we going to continue to be um, uh, under competitive or less competitive than the Chinese who are very much trying to get their students to have a worldview, 900,000 uh, Chinese uh, into the U.S. every year, whereas, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, uh, 900,000 foreign students into the U.S. every year, 300,000 are Chinese. We only send out 300,000 all over the world. Right. So fast forward that 10 years, you see this big disparity in terms of public dip diplomacy and global competencies, U.S. versus others. But then take a look at the detail and see these growing populations across our, our U.S. landscape and see the preparedness of the students that are going to be our leaders, our parents, our heads of companies, our heads of small businesses. They're going to be at an enormous disadvantage. Mm -hmm. And so whether you believe in academics or public diplomacy or um, the importance of preparing students, if your center of gravity is around students, if your purpose is to educate students and to enhance and elevate the next generation, then you have to do these things. Yeah. There's no question about it. So the second half of your question is yeah. models. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, yeah. So the models are, um, you know, I have, a, I have a picture that uh, an old philosophy professor gave me. It's hanging in my office, and it's one of those motivational posters. You have one of those? I That's do. awesome. <laughs> I keep it with me. And uh, there's a I can't think of what the saying is at the bottom, but the, the vision of the surfer coming through the curl, Okay. Right? Everyone's seen that coming at you. It's a really cool photo. But the caption that this professor um, encrypted on the, on the um, present, the gift, was um, in those days I was trying to change everything. I was a, this young, you know, yeah. I'm going to change the world kind of guy. Um, and his, his point was you can't change the shape of the ocean. And so you have to be a little bit more stoic in your approach to things. You can change things, but only to the extent nature and, and major shifts in, in our world, realities of our world, allow you to. Yeah. So think about the, surf, the surfer. If the surfer gets too high, he wipes out. If the surfer gets too low, he gets crushed. Okay. And so you have to stay in the curl of the, of the wave right. to be successful. I grew up in Kansas. I never surfed. So there you go. You've got to get to the ocean. <laughs> no, you got to get to the ocean. So in this space, what's the ocean? The ocean is the trend. The ocean right. is short-term programs. The mm -hmm. ocean is... Um, more programs in English, it's faculty-led programs, it's experiential mm -hmm. learning, it's, it's uh, internships overseas. If you're an organization that's hanging on to yesterday, you're not going to serve your students, you're not going to stay competitive, mm -hmm. and eventually you're going to be falling behind and others are going to be doing a better job of fulfilling their mission of preparing students for tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Regardless of what your definition of what that preparedness needs to be, you're going to lose ground if you don't open yourself up to new models. I probably went to five sessions this week about this concept of um, career preparedness, uh, skills, competency building from, say, what's the result that we're producing and how is that going to make them actually employable? Yeah. And one of the, the challenges is we always talk about this articulation challenge. Like They can't talk about it. They can't tell me why doing this experience in London is valuable and going to make me a great employee for you. Yeah. And one of the reasons I feel like we kind of struggle with it as a field or an industry is that I, I don't know that we know. Can I, I, I say this all the time anecdotally, but you just say to Brooke, tell me about your six months in Geneva, Switzerland, and, and tell me right now, what did you learn and why is it valuable? I mean, it is a hard conversation yeah. to like just pull out of nowhere, yeah. unless you're, you know, as you get older, you get more savvy and wise about your art, how you articulate, but a 22-year-old is like, 
crap. I don't know yeah. what to say. So what do you feel like we need to be doing to help students start having that conversation, having that script so that they do knock your socks off in an interview and you're like, I need that guy yeah. on my team. I think you need, I think you need the, um, there are some building blocks out there that folks are leaning on and probably you've picked up on it in the sessions. Um, having mentors or really smart faculty leading uh, having reflection periods, actually taking the time to tease out the experience throughout. Mm -hmm. In the old days, it was thought that if you just drop somebody in the middle of the woods or the jungle, yeah. no. they would have this amazing experience and they would come back. But we know that it needs to be Guided. nurtured, facilitated. Yeah. It's the same thing that we see in, in good teaching if you're in, in the higher ed space, you know, about Nessie and engagement mm -hmm. and all that sort of thing. And if, if it's advised to happen in college classrooms across the country, then why wouldn't it be a better way to learn and teach overseas. Mm -hmm. It's the same human experience mm -hmm. of actually assimilating knowledge and understanding differences and comparing and contrasting. So I think the missing um, um, pieces, we're, we're identifying as kind of the tip of the iceberg has started to come up out of the water, but we need to focus on those types of support structures as much as we've been focusing on language and, and some of the other building blocks of, of international uh, education. Um, I'll tell you a quick story. I, I went to um, I was delivering a four-year scholarship to a prince in Western Africa. It's a great, it's an Eddie, Eddie Murphy um, uh, Cameroonian story. And a professor, a friend of mine, uh, had done research in Western Africa, a, a, a Muslim king of the oldest dynasty in Western Africa, the Bamum Kingdom in um, uh, Yonde, uh, Cameroon. He was, um, he had eight wives and uh, 35 kids. His oldest kid was about to go to school. And, and Conrad Tuxer, my uh, professor friend, said, do you think uh, the president of the university would be interested in giving this um, young man a scholarship to New York? He'd rather come to New York than to go either to Yonde or to um, Paris. He'd go to school. So we checked in, and our president, uh, Father Harrington, graciously said, sure, go ahead and deliver the four-year scholarship. But you two have to commit to taking care of this kid. Uh, Jim, you have to figure out all the administrative issues, and Conrad, you have to deal with all the academic and student life issues. Okay, so over we go, and we decided to drag our two sons over. So it's the professor and the administrator meeting the king, and we all had our boys there. How old were your kids? At and his son was 10, and my son was um, uh, 15. Awesome. Right, so they were very influential. And, and we come from a kind of a Catholic religious background. My son was in a Catholic uh, uh, private school at the time. And so in eight days, we were in Cameroon, and every night we had a meal with one of the queens who lived in a small house outside the palace. And we broke fast, it was Ramadan. And we uh, went to a ceremony where they were blessing the uh, new imam. So the sultan was the, in our world it would have been the bishop, and in their world he was the, kind of the chief sultan. And um, we, uh, we had a feast where they actually killed the uh, fatted calf from the, tied up at the tree out front. Uh, we visited missionary work, and we climbed Mount Cameroon, and we prayed five times up and five times down as we climbed Mount Cameroon. About uh, a few months after that, uh, living in New York City, the wheels were coming off New York because it was post 9-11, and uh, there was a group trying to build a mosque at Ground Zero. I don't know if you remember those mm -hmm. stories. I do remember that, yeah. So with the guidance of Dr. Tuxer, as he was guiding us through this culture and explaining uh, Muslims and Christians getting along in a kingdom, 800,000 Muslims and 200,000 Christians, perfectly peaceful. Um, when he was explaining the agriculture and art uh, background and the lost script, he saved their alphabet, that was his research. Um, 
climbing the mountain on Easter Eve and praying at the top of a mountain and also translating it into Mamum and uh, saying Muslim blessings at the same time. And coming back down, a few months later, the wheels are coming off in New York City and the headlines in New York are uh, Muslim terrorists, Arab Muslim terrorists. And my son turns to me and says, why are they calling all uh, Muslims uh, Arab terrorists? First of all, they're not all Arabs and they're not all terrorists. They're the most loving people I've ever met. Mm-hmm. So, did we learn Bamum? No. Yeah. Did we get any credit? No. Did we have an amazing, life-changing international experience? Is my son forever changed? Am I forever changed? Yeah. Absolutely. Was it guided by a professor? Would we have had the same experience if we were just wandering through the jungles of Cameroon? Probably not. Mm-hmm. So the notion of time, I don't think, matters as much. Yeah. The notion of a well-structured, well-led, reflective experience mm-hmm. matters. Right. Um, and so at CIE, what we're trying to do is we're trying to take down the artificial building blocks, or, or barriers, I should say, create the building blocks of flexibility and nimbleness, and then make sure that we inject it with the support of quality, meaning good, ref- good safety to begin with, but also good reflection and post-program a nurturing. Mm-hmm. How do you keep it alive? How do you keep the conversation yeah. going? Um, so interesting you bring that up, though, because I talk to you know leaders of other other organizations and directors of offices and things, and you know with the big push and focus on the top of the funnel, yeah. you know there isn't a lot of re- it doesn't seem to be a lot of prioritization of investing in the bottom end of the funnel where they're coming out of the experience. Yeah. What you know. You know, how does someone come to you as a, a leader in a, an institution or you know a private organization and say this is valuable? Even though you know at the at the tail end, it's not like you're recruiting them for another experience. As a, from a business yeah. objective, you're, is there really a value? You know, it's yeah. not a hard yeah. you know yeah. fast yeah. revenue stream. So how how does someone justify it to their boss, saying we need to be investing staff time, energy, whatever money um, to make that happen? So I, I missed actually the heart of your question to to tell that story better. And yeah. I think it takes practice. Yeah. Because our initial reaction as human beings, how was your trip? It was awesome. The food was great. I, I, I learned that, you know, something simple. And so if I'm in a job interview, first of all, I'm a young I'm a student graduate. I'm in a job interview. I don't know how to interview yeah. to begin Period. with. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and I can't tell you how many people come to interview at CIE. And, they, and I say, so what are you going to bring to CIE? And they say, I'd love to travel. And it has nothing you know, to do with boom, what we need. <laughs> exactly. Right. You love to travel. You're not going to help us um, do our mission. Um, so there's a little bit of immaturity there just to begin with, but in the same way that they haven't had coaching in many respect in many instances to actually tell an employer why any of their skills, right. your accounting skills, your organizational design course, your capstone thesis, mm-hmm. how those things matter to the prospective employer. In the same respect, uh, we haven't done a, a good enough job of teaching students how to articulate what's happening, what their transformation and what they're really pulling out. So, you know, my son's quote of, they're the most loving people. Uh, not all Muslims are terrorists. They're not even all Arabs. Um, he had a different uh, view of family structures. He was uh, recognizing that there's more than one way to have a family. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so to tease that out, it just happened to come up because there were headlines. Right. But if there was a formal teasing of that, mm-hmm. um, who knows if that would have been more in, in bloom. And, the second part is you don't know when these experiences are actually going to play out. Right. You know, my career is a pattern of preparing myself for something tomorrow, and it never happens for many years. So I came out with an accounting degree. I didn't practice accounting until six years later. 
I passed my CPA exam, never touched uh, you know, CPA manual for, for six years. I got my doctoral degree. I didn't go use it really for five years after I got it. So um, you, there's, I think we should be patient with not thinking that we have to prove that there was impact immediately. Mm-hmm. I think the longer term um, uh, influence is, is part of the storyline. Right. Um, and I think the challenge there, though, is at the top of the funnel, it's the justification to mom, dad, the Sally Mae, whoever you got to yeah. like, justify some of this stuff to is like, okay, well, tell me I can pay my student loans after yeah. this and tell me why this is going to, you know, put me over the edge at the top of the, the, the front of the line compared to all the other applicants, yeah. you know, out there for the same job. Yeah. Yeah. You know, at a very small level, and it's, it's timely, everyone's talking about it, in this environment today, so it's uh, the end of October. We're a couple of weeks from a national election, and it's been a, it's been a very um, divisive um, narrative mm-hmm. for the last uh, year. And one of the things that we hope to be able to do, one starfish at a time, is to uh, encourage more students to think of the other in terms of their human uh, core rather than their um, last name or their place of birth or their uh, skin color or their dress and you don't you can't do that unless you get out of your backyard and, and go meet some other other folks and see that Muslims are loving people and see that um, coincidentally Nick also was uh, same kid later on went to Mexico and to Chile for a study abroad and, and, uh, and Peru through CIE uh, through CIE yeah yeah of course, of course, of course. right yeah yeah uh, and and had a, an amazing experience and had, has you know he can articulate Mexicans so much more vividly and realistically mm-hmm. than is being depicted today. He can describe Muslims much more uh, um, honestly and authentically than, uh, and he's not an expert, and he's not a sociologist, he's not an anthropologist, he's not a religious expert, but he's bumped into those people mm-hmm. in real life. Uh, and he's had mentors, CIE leaders, kind of facilitate uh, his experiences. So the more we can we can do that, um, I think mm-hmm. our world will be or be better tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that one-on-one time, though. That's you know, time is our most expensive commodity, right? Yep. And the, and the most limited. We all start over at midnight, right? Yep. So, I think that's really. I and I want to be cognizant of your time too. So I want to sort of flip the script a little bit for a final couple of questions. You kind of alluded to this before about when people interview for CIEE. How does somebody get a job at CIEE? Like, what does it take? So uh, go back to the core compass. Like, what's your, what's your uh, purpose in life? If your purpose, our, so our mission is uh, we're actually not a study abroad organization by mission. We're an international experience in education. We facilitate bringing people together. Mm-hmm. So CIEE is for sure the largest study abroad uh, organization, but we're also the largest inbound mm-hmm. uh, foreign exchange organization as well, bringing thirty thousand students from a hundred different countries into the U.S. So what we're looking for is. Um, two things. We're looking for someone who really does value the importance of what brings us together as human beings. Where, where's our common human purpose and has a passion for bringing them together? And then second, um, having a skill set that we need to achieve our mission. And that skill set sometimes is not very sexy. Yeah. And sometimes it's like you're a good accountant mm-hmm. and you're right. number one at the box office. Uh, uh, you're a good account or you're a really good um, participant service so you support students on program mm-hmm. and you don't necessarily get around the world you're not actually traveling across the country or around the world but you're supporting the experience uh, other times we have many many roles obviously where you are actually overseas or across the country 
telling the story and encouraging students mm -hmm. to uh, and parents to be open to uh, such an experience. So it's two things. It's having a passion for the mission and it's having a set of skills that our uh, organization needs. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah, that's, I, I run a global, the Global Pro Institute. I don't, I don't think you probably know about it, but it's basically an online training program for people trying to break into the field. It's sort yeah. of a kind of a bridge experience before going to have to get a master's degree. And that's like the mantra I give them all the time: is that no one cares where you've been, what you've learned, all the credentials you think you have. They only care what you can do for them. Like it sounds horribly like uh, maybe a little harsh, but yeah. I say, they're going to care about you as a human, especially once you get in the door. But if they're filtering through a hundred applicants. At the end of the day, that you need to tell them that you are going to be their dream come true, yeah. and this is what you can do for them. Yeah, and that's all I care about. And you know what they do. So you wouldn't you wouldn't get a job at uh, at Nike if you didn't understand that they were you know basically uh, if you I like to run, so I want to work for Nike. Like, right. That wouldn't work so well. And so for us, we we've, we've hired a lot of people in the last five years. We've doubled the size of the company in terms of employees, in terms of students' lives impacted, in terms of revenue, gone from 100 million to 200 million in revenue. And, and so we're growing like mad, and at times we make really good hires where we have that match, where the skill set's there and the passion is there. And other times we have a little bit um, more of this kind of self-centered viewpoint and maybe not the skill set that, that we need. And if one of those two are missing, then um, we, are, we are quicker than maybe some other organizations to um, suggest a change. Why? Because as a nonprofit, every dollar that we can put on the bottom line is invested in scholarships or technology to make things better or uh, programs mm -hmm. uh, to enhance the experience pre and post testing and that sort of thing and we feel that our mission is so important it's such a kind of a sacred mission it's so uh, globally important that um, we don't see ourselves as kind of a sleepy nonprofit uh, where folks can kind of come and kind of mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, cruise through the day. One of the guys who was the founder of, have you ever heard of the organization Pencils of Promise? No. Oh, it's great. A, it's great. It's a cool organization, and now I can, something. I think Adam Braun was the founder, but he was a study abroad alumni. He did a semester at C actually, and he'd worked in like I worked at Bain and was a consultant for many yeah. years. But his, that experience studying abroad it just hung with him, and he remembers going to some villages in Africa somewhere and seeing how the kids were just so excited to get a pencil because they brought yeah. like pencils yeah. for them. Yeah. And so he, they created this. It's a nonprofit, but he and he wrote a book about it afterwards, but of taking that concept of how they would consult a business like at Bain and bring a business up to speed, a startup or something, yeah, yeah. applying the same philosophies and agility structures to a nonprofit, Perfect. but flipping the script on that and saying, we're not nonprofit, we're for purpose yeah. instead of being for profit, for, you know, and it was, it's, he does a, I think he has a TED talk and all that stuff. It's really, I'll link to it below the video, but, or below the podcast, but it's, it's really empowering to see how you can, you can be a nonprofit, but still think about things in much more strategic ways. You don't have to be lazy and, yeah. oh, we don't make money. And yeah. it's like, no, we, we sell well, things we need to fund and things we have missions we, we want to pursue. Exactly, and that's the, that's the ROI. So yeah. in a for-profit, the ROI is a return to investors through stock or equity or mm -hmm. private equity guys or whatever. In a not-for-profit or a social enterprise, the return on investment is lives impacted, mm -hmm. moving the needle, mm -hmm. and, and, and that takes just as much energy, mm -hmm. sometimes more. It takes just as much passion. Mm -hmm. uh, it takes high energy and a commitment to overcome problems. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes the problems are a bigger riddle than they are in a traditional business. And mm -hmm. so the cre creative juices have to be there as well. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's uh, it's not a sleepy, lazy enterprise. It's a high-paced, very interactive, very competitive. Mm -hmm. 
There are lots of folks in our space that are for-profits that are owned by private equity or individual owners, um, and they're, they're pretty aggressive. Uh, we believe that our responsibility to the field is to have a portfolio of programs, not all of which make money. So about a third of our quarter of our programs actually lose money, but a third to break even and a third actually uh, do a little bit better than their direct costs. And collectively, we can stay in business, and without margin, you can't continue the mission. Mm -hmm. But um, on a macro basis, we're serving our member schools, we're serving more students, we're serving more majors. Um, by um, doing things that don't always make sense from an ROI financial perspective. Mm -hmm. They do make sense from an ROI human impact right. perspective. Right, vision mission, yeah, yeah, that's great. One last question. Sure. Going back, it's 1978, right? Yeah. So when you were in college? You're uh, still at Niagara? Yeah, 79. 79, okay, so uh, it's it's young Jim Pillow. Yeah. The world is, is an oyster. You know everything you know now about the world and opportunities for study abroad, but you're back there. Yep. Where would you go? And why? How would I do like for study? If would you go to study abroad first of all, and then where where would you go if the answer is yes, or what would you do? Uh, this is gonna sound like a punt. I would do it exactly the same way. Interesting. And the reason I say that, so I, I have folks, including my kids, uh, I have two boys, uh, 25 and 23, and a daughter, 19, um, that come once in a while for advice, and and lots of their friends, and lots of our students and young employees. Um, we have a mentoring program, so I have a, a mentee. Inside CIE? Uh, inside CIE, oh, nice. yeah. Great. He's a terrific guy. He takes me to all the great bars in Portland. <laughs> um, and, you know, the advice I give uh, to them, I would give to myself at that age of 18, 19. Uh, when I came out of school, I graduated on a Saturday. I started work on a Monday morning. And I had these incredible opportunities that were not always feeling like they were good and easy. In fact, they weren't. They were hard. It was a university going out of business. It was a bond company going out of business. It was... Um, uh, my next job was in Boston, working with Dukakis, Governor Dukakis, mm -hmm. reducing the healthcare system. He was system. one of my professors in college. Great guy, yeah. great guy. So I was part of a consulting team that was helping the state of Massachusetts reduce its its acute care uh, healthcare system to uh, more day clinics. Um, crisis intention and important to to serve more people and to do things responsibly. Uh, and then my my last job before I kind of started up the ladder of uh, of university administration was with St. John's, and they were struggling with certain things. So. Having kind of a series of boot camps where time after time there was this crisis and problem and issue mm -hmm. that you were invited into the circle to solve mm -hmm. with a very clear mission. So the two universities I worked for were all about serving the poor. The healthcare system in Massachusetts was to make sure that there was an um, uh, uncompensated care pool that could mm -hmm. support uh, people that didn't have insurance. Um, even the bond business, um, well, it was lucrative for the bond traders. The bond, the mentality of those traders was to give back, and so, you know, part of the excitement of being part of that group was the fundraisers that they used to go to. And everybody sat on a board, and everybody wrote big checks, and they bragged about writing big checks to help soup kitchens and, and daycare clinics and so on. So everything that I did up until kind of getting into international education was um, training right. for being in the role that I'm in now, which mm -hmm. is the the the. Landscape is a little bit bigger. The world is big. It's not. It's not uh, Western New York or New York City or the small parts of the world that I was involved with at St. John's. Uh, it's big. Uh, the complexities are, are real. But having that experience of crisis management and also living 20 years in Queens County in, in New York City, the most diverse county in the country, um, all of those things have kind of added um, experience that I then draw on today mm -hmm. uh, yeah. to try to lead CIE. I love that story too because. I am definitely one of those people that, because I've, I I studied higher ed, generally I've worked in different areas of higher education, and I, 
I am a huge supporter of study abroad. I said abroad three times. I'm an advocate. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, I also, as a, like a Pell Grant eligible first yeah, generation yeah. student myself from Kansas, of all places, it's like I totally get how there could have, if I'd gone to St. John's somehow yeah. uh, from Kansas, that there are probably plenty of amazing learning opportunities for me that, right there yeah. on campus that could have helped me develop into whoever I would become. Yep. It, it, you don't have to actually leave the country in these, this formal state, you know, and I think it comes back to the how we started the conversation of like being open to new ideas and program models of how do we get students thinking in a global capacity, in a multicultural capacity, and it doesn't always mean getting on a plane. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's I, I think it's about the human, the human uh, elements. You know, we're, we're sending a thousand high school kids overseas that are uh, rising so, uh, sophomores and, ju and uh, juniors. These are 15, 16 year olds, and they're dropping into Tokyo, they're dropping into Amman, Jordan, and they're doing just fine. Mm -hmm. And they're, if they're not mature enough to do it, they're mature enough when they, they come out. They've kind of been thrown in the pool. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, the advice I give to uh, everyone, and I would give to myself uh, as a youngster, is collect experiences, figure out the intersection of the experiences, and how collectively you've, you've got this kind of um, grid of strength and. Um, tools in your toolbox mm -hmm. that you can draw on and then contribute to the next challenge that mm -hmm. you face. Yeah, perfect. Thank you so much, Jim, for coming on the podcast. If you'd like to connect with Jim, feel free to find him over on Twitter as at Pello, C-I-E-E. -E. And as always, if you'd like to connect with me, you can follow Inside Study Abroad on Twitter and Facebook as In Study Abroad. But if you'd like to come inside my crazy little world and see what I'm up to on a day-to-day -day basis, you can follow me personally on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat, if you're down with that, as The New Dorothy. In other news, I'm also going to be presenting at the relaunch virtual reentry retreat hosted by my friend Kate Brewraker over at Small Planet Studio. That is taking place online and absolutely for free from January 23rd through 27th. And you can sign up. You'll get five days of of content. There's going to be 15 different sessions, 20 speakers, all available for free and online. So you can sort of tune in from wherever you are. I will have links to all of this in the show notes as well. And I would love to see you guys there and uh, see how you guys can sort of take your own international experiences to the next level and also share this opportunity with your students, perhaps. You can find that over at insightstudyabroad.com slash relaunch, or there's going to be several links in the show notes to this episode as well over at Inside Study Abroad. Before I share who's coming on the next episode, I want to give a quick shout out to today's sponsor, Teradata. As professionals in international education, we know that there are a lot of moving parts when it comes to facilitating and administering meaningful international experiences. And all of those moving parts can often be overwhelming and confusing to students. This is where Teradata comes in. They help create systems and processes that cut through the confusion and streamline everything, ultimately helping more students find success on these programs. You can learn more about Teradata at teradata.com. Next week, I'm sharing my interview with Wagaya Johannes, the manager of the Generation Study Abroad Initiative at IIE, and we will be talking about how the initiative got started, how the progress is going so far, and how you can get involved. Stay tuned for that. Until next time, I hope to see you on the inside. Bye for now.